preaching of God's Word then is found in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Luke 17, verses 1 and 2. It's there speaking of Christ as follows. Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Brethren, you'll be familiar with the Scriptures which remind us that the life of a Christian is often likened unto a walk, a pilgrimage, a journey. And so we find exhortations given to us to walk as he walked. We're reminded that uh, there is a way set before for us which is narrow and straight, that we are to walk not turning to the right or to the left, but straight on. And yet the Scriptures build upon that image here and there throughout its holy pages. There is a boundary given to us. The Word of God is to be to us our guide, not breaking over the commandments or neglecting those commandments, but walking in there. There is fuel to our souls given, food and nourishment for the spiritual exercise of our journey, which is that we feed upon Christ Jesus by faith. There are difficult portions that are variously described as trials and hardships, and even such that we must deny ourselves and along our journey bear our crosses following Christ. There are likewise enemies along the journey who would seek to hinder our progress and turn us aside. It is this latter aspect to which Christ now gives attention. He does so by notice turning to speak particularly to his disciples. So, though his disciples are present in all that's preceded, there was, in a particular way, an emphasis teaching against the Pharisees, though there's warning certainly to us in the previous discourse, as we saw. He now looks to his disciples and he gives them a warning. He says, it is impossible but that offenses Will come. Now we have to understand this term offenses. In our world, offense or to be offended is to have some inner grief towards something done or said against us. I'm offended that you would such and such, whatever that instance may be. But here the word means stumbling block. It is, in fact, often applied in classical Greek to what some will know as a trigger stick in a snare. And so if you know anything, though perhaps never having practiced it, of uh, snaring creatures, there's often some tension on something or propping up of some heavy object as a stone or log. And when a creature were to come through and trip the trigger, then the trap would fall or the snare would uh, be constricted and the thing caught. And so this is the word that Christ employs. It is elsewhere translated with reference to an occasion to fall or an occasion of stumbling. And so Christ is saying, it is impossible but that stumbling stones, snares, traps will come. He's not talking about literal traps 
as of creatures and other such things that hunters employ, but rather he's talking about those who would lead others astray off the path of his own instruction. Now, you'll notice he says, it is impossible but that these stumblings will come. Of course, this has much to do with the very nature of sinful man, that such is his givenness to these things, and obviously under the sovereignty and providence of God, that they do come to pass. Every generation testifies of this. There's not a day in the history of the world that you can point to and not find that there were various degrees of snares and traps and stones of stumbling that were intending the misguiding and the forcing of God's people off of their path. We'll give more attention to this. Well, notice what he says. Woe unto him through whom they come. In other words, their inevitability is no excuse for those who bring it to pass. Those who lay snares, those who set traps, those who prove to be stones of stumbling to others to push off the path of the Lord Jesus Christ are here pronounced to bear a curse. And notice how he does so in verse 2. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that one of that he should offend one of these little ones. Now you and I are unfamiliar with this form of processing of grains and other such things, but there would be stones that would be in various ways uh, worked so as to crush grain and to unveil, as it were, the kernel, which would be the edible part. Now some of these stones were so large that they couldn't be turned by hand but they rather had to be harnessed by a mule or ox and turned by the force of such a creature of strength. And the Greek would actually uh, testify of that sized millstone. It's not something that perhaps a servant could handle. It was something that would demand the force and weight of a creature of great strength to handle. And notice, children, the image that such a thing were tied around his neck and he casts into the sea. Now, what's the significance of that? That he would suffer such judgment unto death, that he should die such an infamous death, that he should die in such a perilous way, than that he should ever be the cause of leading someone else unto sin. Now, think of that for a moment, because that's significantly weighty. Our day has multitudes that are actually targeting for their gain the leading astray of professed Christians together with their children from the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this expression, little ones, would primarily refer to children, but in a parallel passage, we can see that it includes believers in general. It's a very loving term that Christ bears toward you, his people. Think of this for a moment. Christ's assessment of you as his people is one of endearment. He looks upon you with, as it were, a father's love. Elsewhere, an elder brother's love. Elsewhere, a husband's love. All of these different expressions trying to capture the sincerity of Christ's love to you, his people. Now you'll notice in Matthew chapter 18, there is 
a parallel to what's expressed in our passage, Luke 17. Notice 18 and verse 2 of Matthew. Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he takes a child and says this is in one sense an image and expression of what all believers are to be like. They are to be dependent. They are to be trusting. They are to be uh, as weak and yet as strong by those, by the one who cares for them. Notice in verse 6 of Matthew 18, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. What's the point? Well, though there is a primary reference to little children, covenant children, and so on, there is an expanding of that notion to include his believing disciples together. And so the point of this passage is to display that it would be better to die. It would be better to have our life taken from us than to lead any of Christ's little ones into the path of sin away from Christ. Now, this is something that demands our attention, not least for which it comes from Christ to his disciples. Think of that for a moment. He's both warning his disciples that these things come, but he's also warning his disciples that they not prove to be the ones that set the snare for others. And so there's wisdom in Christ, both displaying his love, saying, pay attention, there will be those who set stones of stumbling in your path, but likewise he's saying out of compassion, pay attention and be not the one who sets a stone of stumbling in another's path. So consider these things as expressive of Christ's great care for you. Parents, you know this. Mothers and fathers, you do this. You tell your children, there are men and women, young people in this world, who whatever they say, whatever they display, their actual intention is not your good. You have to pay attention to this. Don't be gullible. Don't be one who simply goes along and says, well, they say it's good for me, so I'm going to pay attention to it. And as that gets more complicated as they mature, we start making them pay attention to advertisements and ways of the culture and saying, do you see what's really going on here? Look at all the smiles. Look at all of that feel-good expression and see what's taking place. The world is striving to snare you away from the good path unto that path of destruction. The Proverbs are full of this very thing. And Christ is expressing His great love for His people, saying, pay attention. I love you. I am concerned for your good. But others despise you. They despise me. And so Christ comes in as a good shepherd and a loving and faithful one to direct us in the way of safety and protection. And likewise calling us, as we would call our children, not to be those who would cause others to stumble in the way or out of the way of Christ. So to help us, consider then three things. Firstly, what it is to stumble in God's kingdom. Secondly, causes of stumbling. And thirdly, how it is we are to avoid such stumbling. 
So what stumbling is, the causes of that stumbling, and how it is we avoid it. Well, to the first, what is it to stumble at offenses as it is? Woe unto him through whom they come. It is impossible but that offenses come. Now, what's interesting is, there is one stumbling block that is actually innocent. There's one thing that causes men to stumble that is actually with no guile, with no, as it were, uh, uh, evil in itself. And that's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus crucified is the one thing, but notice, at which men stumble. Unbelievers stumble. The Jews stumbled at it because it was unto them weakness. And the Greeks stumbled at it because it was unto them foolishness. Remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul testifying of this, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. Oh, it's folly and weakness. And likewise to the Gentiles, it's folly. But unto us, oh, it's the wisdom and power of God. Well, its counterfeit is that which turns men away from Christ. It's what causes them to, as it were, go astray from and to cease making advancement and progress in the way of Christ. Think of the image that Christ uses, these offenses, this trigger stick or the snare or this trap. Beware, He's saying, there are traps along the way. What does a trap do? Well, a trap captures something and it causes that something to cease making its progress along its path. Hunters, trappers, are tremendously skilled at these things. If you've ever watched anything about those who trap things, whether for survival or for business and so on, it's astounding how skilled they are both at building the trap and, as it were, concealing the trap, and thirdly, making the creature want to go into the trap. All three of those things are fundamental for such a trap, a snare, uh, to be effective. And spiritually what happens is men are focused, purposed, intending to capture men and to ensnare them from their following of Christ Jesus. Now you can instantly think of how the Scriptures warn against this. You think of how Proverbs spends its opening chapters warning young men against the beauties of the harlot that would lead them astray, and warning others against the beauties of feasting unto drunkenness, and so on. And so it warns against staring at wine in the glass and being enamored with its beautiful hues and its beautiful scent. And uh, though there's goodness in enjoying wine, as it makes glad the heart, there is great danger in abusing wine as it leads to drunkenness. You think of how Satan caused the whole of humanity to stumble by arguing for something that was evil to be good. This is the fundamental way. The purpose of the snare is to arrest one, to capture one, to ensnare one, that they turn aside from God. Now, how does this happen? Or to what degree does it happen? Well, there are 
lesser stumblings, which are no less sinful, and there are greater stumblings. What are the lesser stumblings? Well, such things can come even from Christians. You can see this, for instance, in the book of Galatians. You remember that Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia, and he is, as we'll see, reproving them for their embracing of a snare. But what is astounding to us is that one of those who laid the snare was none less than Peter himself. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And other Jews, the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Notice verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, and so on. Here's the point. Peter had himself been tripped up by a snare. And he himself then becomes a snare to others to, as it were, thrust upon the Gentiles the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. And Paul sees this and says, this is not right. Now, notice what's not happening. There's not, and we ought to be very clear in this, an explicit renouncing of Christ here. Peter is not saying, I renounce Christ, and the Galatians were not explicitly renouncing Christ. However, their activity was implicitly a stumble against Christ. This is Paul's insight. He says, I see what's taking place, and you aren't aware of it. This activity that's now found expression in the churches of Galatia is that which will corrupt the purity of the gospel and is corrupting it so that men will be led astray to turn justification by grace alone through faith alone into justification by faith and works. And so though it is not an open apostasy, an explicit renouncing, it is the seed that leads to the same. So it's a lesser stumbling. It's that which causes a halt to the more pure and full advance of the Gospel. There are many ways that one may, in this lesser manner, stumble. But if we acknowledge this distinction, it is something that is short of the public renouncing of Christ. It's, as it were, someone being tripped up and yet still professing the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, though there are many lesser stumblings, lesser snares, though Satan would intend that the lesser would lead to the open and public, there is also the greater stumbling, which would be unto apostasy, the open renouncing of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, brethren, we see this not only in those who openly do it with their lips, but those who openly do it with their lives. Both are equal, though one with their life renouncing 
with their, or with their mouth rather, not renouncing, saying, well, I'm a Christian, yet John will say quite clearly, the one who says this or does this or thinks this or pursues this or avoids this or avoids that, whatever their profession, they have turned aside from the truth. There are some sins, public displays, whatever one's profession, which is equal to an open apostasy from the faith. Now notice, you can see this in 1 John chapter 2. And so, 1 John chapter 2, he says at verse 18, little children, an interesting relation, little children is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, it's important for us to remember the dispensationals are wrong in their view of the Antichrist, which will be this, as it were, this open and explicit enemy of Christ. In truth, the biblical notion of the Antichrist is one who contends to be for Christ and yet stands in the place of Christ. Now notice what happens. They went out from us, verse 19, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out. Do you see this language of departure? They're going out. They're leaving. They're renouncing, as it were, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. A couple of things this reminds us is that apostasy is not a converted person becoming unconverted. It is a covenant member whether by birth or by profession, who is now turning against that profession, turning against the faith once delivered to the saints. Once one is truly converted, they can never be deconverted. They are always by God's grace sustained, though they stumble, though they trip, as we saw Peter, yet will they be brought again to repentance and faith and so forth. But these who apostatize are those who for a season professed faith, who partook of the ordinances of the church and so on, were counted as believers. But what does the apostasy reveal? It doesn't reveal a change in their nature. It reveals a change in our perception. We see them for what they are. You can think of it this way. You know, if a spy against a nation is living for years and funneling information back to its Uh, enemy uh, government, if they're caught, it doesn't change them, it reveals them. And that's what goes on when one apostatizes. It's not that they're changed, it's that they're revealed for what they are. That's John's point. And so this helps us in one aspect with the passage before us in Luke. It's not that those who stumble unto apostasy are those who uh, were once regenerate and now are no longer so. It's that they have been led astray from that covenant and from that profession of faith unto the renouncing of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it is to stumble in the purest sense. It is to renounce the true and living God. It is to renounce the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, before we go on, remember this. This is a word of Christ out of concern and care for you. What's he getting at? He's saying to his people, There are those who want to stumble you, to trip you up, to 
capture you. And their intention, whatever their desires expressed are, whatever their friendliness expressed is, is not really to help you. Oh, they may put their arm around you and say, oh, the church, how wicked. Oh, God's people, how wicked. Oh, the, God, the, the, the Christ of the Bible, how wicked. And they may befriend you for all their life. But what's actually taking place is they've hooked the snare around your neck and they've tightened it on and they hold the snare around you. Christ is saying, pay attention to this. There are men and women who would pursue this toward you. And you need to be aware of the real design in such snares. You know, so soon as a creature gets intrigued by the snare set by the trapper, he's already caught. His attention is there, and it's just a moment of a matter of time before he walks in fully and is there. But if you could get that creature to be suspicious of those things, instead of saying, Oh, I'm going to investigate. They turn away from those things. And this is what Christ is trying to get at. There are such snares that intend your spiritual ruin. Well, secondly, then, what are the causes of such stumbling? We've already appealed to Galatians, and Galatians gives us one such cause. What is it that leads some to stumble, whether in the lesser or in the greater way? It is as the Scriptures emphasize in various ways, a turning of the gospel of grace into a gospel of grace and works. Now, we say grace and works, but so soon as you add any degree of works, it turns the gospel into a gospel of works. You see this in Galatians. Uh, We didn't read this passage from Galatians, but you can hear it quite clearly. Galatians and chapter 1 There at verse 6, Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed, you hear the language of turning astray, removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. What is it that this other gospel was? It was the combining of observations for my standing before God as righteous. And so, Paul will make this quite clear in Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Brethren, here's the point. The Galatian churches were being infiltrated by a corruption of the gospel. They were being taught that in place of faith alone justifying us, you needed faith in Christ, certainly, but you also needed observations of God's law for the purpose of justifying us. This is something that has appeared again and again throughout church history Here it is in the earliest days of the church, Galatians. We find it in the early days of the church fathers and then medieval time, as is well known, Reformation contended earnestly against this. We found it even in certain forms of so-called evangelical teaching that made the gospel a new law so that faith actually 
fulfills the law in such a way that if I believe I now have done what grants me righteousness, my work of faith, is that which justifies. We've seen it in more recent days with still its spread and hold upon our day of federal vision as various expressions would hold forth this notion that, yeah, you're justified by grace alone, but you're kept in the covenant by your works. Brethren, here's the point. Whatever their intentions, whatever their inward thoughts are, so soon as we muddle the idea of justification by grace alone through faith alone and put into the way of justification any aspect of our works, we are setting a snare to lead people astray and ourselves likewise astray with it. The gospel must be maintained in all of its utter simplicity that the just shall live by faith, that the justification of a sinner is by faith alone, and though there is a place for the law, it has no place in the justification of the sinner. Problem again and again is that clever men come up with clever ways to assert both justification and the works of the law in a way that is combining them so as to say, well, all we're really saying is the law is good, just, and holy. Well, there's a way of saying the law is good, just, and holy and acknowledging that therefore it does condemn us because we show ourselves as criminals against it. And once saved, it guides us as to how we show our gratitude to God. And yet, if that law enters into my standing, my personal fulfilling of that law is now my standing before God for righteousness, I have eclipsed the beauty and the light of the gospel, and I have caused the gospel of grace to be corrupted. This is what was taking place in Galatians. This is a chief cause. And so, brethren, here's the point. You need to be on the lookout for those who would speak highly of the law, but not in its proper place, who would speak highly of the law and would bring it in as some cause for your acceptance with God, your obedience, your doing. And brethren, here's the biggest place you need to look. It's your own heart. Your own heart has a tendency to want to lean upon its observations of God's law and say, this is why I'm accepted. Instead of saying, I thank God for the fruit of grace, but the fruit of grace is not the reason I'm accepted, it's the evidence of a life transformed. We have to be watchful to remind ourselves that we stumble not at this common stumbling stone and rather embrace Christ crucified as our acceptance, as our peace, as our righteousness before God. Brethren, it's a temptation because we live in a day of gross antinomianism. In our day, the law of God is first off not known and second off openly despised. What happens in such seasons is a temptation to say what we need to do is see where the pendulum is gone. We need to bring it back. But instead of bringing it back to its balanced position, the, uh, the, the common temptation is to so pull on it that we pull it past its right place and swing it to a different place, which is the wickedness of legalism. So brethren, beware of those who will come to you and say, do you agree that there is wickedness in this world? Yes, I agree. 
Do you agree that there's lawlessness in this world? Yes, I agree. Well, here's the solution. We need men, women, and children to start observing the law of God in order for their acceptance with God. That is a snare. There's another way that causes men to stumble. And it is perhaps more fully seen in our day to day. And this is by the turning of the gospel into the permission to sin. And so we see this, and perhaps your ears, as my ears have, have heard this kind of argument. So as soon as you say, listen, the Christian ought to walk according to the law of God, what's the response you get? Well, that's turning the law into something it's not supposed to be. Of course, we agree that the law is not in the realm of our justification before God, but the law is to govern, guide, and direct the renewed heart in the expression of gratitude unto the Lord. And so we see this everywhere throughout the Holy Scriptures. I mean, think of this for a moment. So soon as a Christian says they admit that people sin, they have to admit by definition that the law has a place in the life of the believer. You say, why? If a believer, whatever their theology says that a Christian sins, well, the Bible tells us, 1 John tells us, Sin is the transgression of the law. In other words, the law tells us what sin is. The law defines for us what sin is. And if we say the law is irrelevant, then effectively what we're saying is sin is irrelevant. Here's the problem. People see various forms of legalism, and like we've talked about the pendulum, they take it and they rip it to the other side. And they would maintain a form theologically known as antinomianism, which is basically saying the law has no oversight of the Christian. And this notion is, of course, not merely saying that the law doesn't justify us, but is saying that as a Christian, there's no recourse I need. Don't come and preach to me the Ten Commandments. Don't tell me about my duty, which, of course, is abjectly in error when we search the Scriptures. What's the point? The Gospel is no Gospel that says, now go and do as you want. The Gospel is a Gospel of good news that says, you're pardoned freely by the blood and righteousness of Christ. And here's the good news of that. You are brought into fellowship, friendship, communion with a holy God. Now, as your God is holy, so walk in Him. You see, the beauty of the Gospel, which shines a light upon us, both of the way of entrance by grace alone and the walking of grace alone, also shows us that pathway. Think of it. When Christ went forth proclaiming the kingdom, He proclaimed the kingdom of righteousness. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Not a kingdom of, well, you're forgiven, so don't worry about it. Well, you're under grace, so don't worry about your obedience. But rather, by God's grace, not for your standing with God, but for your expression of joy and friendship and fellowship, walk now in the way of God. You can see this very clearly asserted in one of those epistles that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and at verse 19. 
Christ says to the angel of the church of Thyatira, I know thy works, verse 19, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Whatever else Christ is saying, he's saying this, I will not tolerate impurity in my pure bride. And so he's warning, he's been long-suffering, and as the scriptures are clear in previous passages, his long-suffering is not in the least meant to condone the sin, but his kindness is meant to lead to repentance. He says, I gave her space to repent. She repented not. Here's the last warning. If she doesn't repent, I'm going to destroy her and all with her. Brethren, that's the language of one who loves his children. Think of this for a moment. Some families, perhaps even in this room, know what it is to have a child led astray by one who promises them much, and yet leads them into enslavement of various forms, drug abuse and other such things. And the friendship that they think they have is really imprisoning them. The parent doesn't say, well, I know your friend is saying good things, so go ahead, just be aware. The parent takes every measure possible to say, this is done. You're not going to be with that person anymore, right? Why? Because your good is important to me. This is Christ's expression to you saying, You are important to me. I care for you. Be aware that there are those who would corrupt the purity of the gospel and also those who would corrupt it not only by making it a law by which we earn our righteousness, but by making it that which removes that expression of love God's people are to show in their obedience to Him. How is it that such twisting comes to pass. It can be by formal instruction. This prophetess called Jezebel was one who was teaching, as it says. Perhaps that was formal teaching. Perhaps it was just by example. But it can be by teaching. And so there are false teachers who get up and with all of their proud arrogance, they declaim against either the purity of the gospel of free grace or they declaim against the right obedience owed unto God and the expression of the moral law. This is to instruct men, women, and children in aspects of stumbling in the advance of Christ's cause. But it can also be by unholy example, which is often twinned with such formal teaching. Peter was stumbling others by his example. He withdrew from the Gentiles, and he, by his example, was, as it were, putting pressure on them to compromise the purity of the gospel. Brethren, here's something for you and me to think about. It doesn't seem that Peter himself was formally instructing people with his mouth. But Paul saw what was going on, and he said, what you're doing is wicked. Here's something for us to consider about ourselves. What does my life 
my way in front of my children, in front of other Christians, in front of the world, say about the Gospel? Does my life at all tell others that the real way of acceptance is by trusting and by obeying? If so, something's off in our witness and we're causing others to stumble. Or does my life in any way indicate that God doesn't really care about sin in His children? That is a stumbling to others of which Christ is warning us. Well, finally, how is it we avoid such stumbling? Well, if the snares which Christ is warning us of would lead us astray, away from Christ, would arrest our advance in Christ, well then, certainly the way we avoid it is by holding fast to Christ. Now here's something to remember. Holding fast to Christ certainly includes the doctrine of Christ taught to us in the Bible. But to do so truly, we have to hold to Him personally, knowing the fellowship of Christ. So you can think of it, a husband and wife, they can be encouraged as they think upon perhaps the beauties or the uh, virtues of one another, but there is a benefit of strengthening that relationship they have as they're with one another and express that love tangibly to one another as they are intimate with one another in words and actions and time and other such things. The point is to hold, to cleave fast to someone is far more than an assertion of certain things. It includes those assertions. It includes those aspects of truth assented to, but there is a personal embrace of the same. So here's the point. If you wish to avoid snares and being snared or setting snares, you must, above all else, hold fast personally to Christ. Parents, let me say this to you directly. Of all other things your children need, your children need you to be a vibrant testimony of one who holds fast to Christ, who loves Christ, who knows Christ, who does so not out of some rigid legalism, but out of a loyal love to Him who loved you. So that though they see you denying yourself and diligent in all of the disciplines of godliness, they also see the evidence that this is not something that they're forced to do as it were out of fear, but it's something that they love to do out of love. And so you can ask yourself, parents, if your children were honest in looking at you, would they see one who not only with his words or her words says Christ is good, Christ is important, not only sees one whose actions are diligent, but sees one who denies himself or herself, takes up his cross or her cross, follows Christ, and does so with delight. Because it's then that there's truly a cleaving to Christ. We must hold fast to Him as well doctrinally. Sometimes in our age, we have fallen victim to the strategy that says, you know what's more important is feelings over doctrine. And so we start to think in terms of what I really need is new emotional experiences. Well, we, we are people who feel, and we have emotions, and they're to be, of course, running after good things. But the Scripture set forth this truth, that our feelings are to follow truth. And so you and I need to be students of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means 
Hebrews tells us this. There are some who by this time ought to be able to teach others, but have the need to go back and learn the first principles. That doesn't come as a mean-spirited remark in the book of Hebrews. That comes as a loving reproof saying, the Lord expects more of you than the world expects of you. The Lord expects more that will benefit not only you, but others. But the world would casually say, don't be so diligent. Don't read books. Don't listen to these addresses. Don't force yourself to do these things. Just sit back, relax, and let others do the work. But Christ is calling us to a diligent of study of His Word and that which helps us understand His Word. Both of these need to be together because the only Christ we can hold to, as expressed already, is the Christ held forth to us in the Scriptures. All other things are vain imaginations which will do us no good. So this then leads us, if we're to avoid stumbling, to cultivate devotion to Christ. And so it begs the question, are you devoted to Christ? Are you one whose life shows that your first calling is Christ? Or is your first calling your family? Or is your first calling the church? Or is your first calling your job? Or is your first calling your bed? Or is your first calling your stomach? Or is your first calling your friends? Or your games? Or your sports? Or whatever else? Everyone here will want to say, no, my first calling is the Lord. Well, there's a simple way of testing that. Does He take first place in your time? Does He take first place in your family? You know, you have school, you have food, you have work. All of those things are needed, and there's a way in which those come under the Lord and serve the Lord. But when you're with your family, what's first? Christ or something else? If it's not Christ, here's the point you're subtly laying a snare for your children and you're the snare. You're actually showing your children that Christ is not first. And what that is, is a subtle pushing of them off the path by which Christ says, if you would be my disciple, here are the simple, clear, and irrevocable terms. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. That is the unchanged term. If we're to follow Christ, that's what's needed. And so the question then is, is my life cultivating that? Now, brethren, Peter's a prime example that none of our lives perfectly cultivate that. But this is why Christ is coming to us saying, beware of it. Pay attention to this and assess yourself and say, is it so? And brethren, is it not the case that each of us has to say, oh, it's not as it should be? So what do we do with that? Well, we could take on the erroneous temptation of saying all hope is lost, or we could turn to Christ to say, thank you for reminding me that there is something that exceeds all other things. And so give me grace now to hold fast to Christ that I may teach my spouse, my children, that I may be a help to those in the congregation in being an example of one devoted to Christ above all else. Another way of avoiding such stumbling is instead of actively setting snares, 
let us be those who actively promote Christ to others. Think of it this way. If you were to look, if I play the tape recorder or play the MP3 file of the words that came out of your mouth this week, if we could have it right here, hit play, boom, and all of the words come out of your mouth in front of everyone, how many of those words would be about the beauty and glory of Christ? See the point? There'd be a lot of necessary words, of course. There'd be words that are needed in correcting our children. There'd be words that are needed in contending for the truth. But how many of those words are of the act of setting forth of the beauty, the delight, the love, the salvation, the glory of Christ? This is a way of avoiding such stumbling by actually setting the beauty of Christ before all. Well, as we close, here's something to see. Christ loves your well-being. Christ is concerned for you, adults and young people and children, more than the world loves and cares for you, and frankly, more than you and I love and care for ourselves. Because He sees the dangers, and He warns us of them, not so that we go forth cowering, but that we go forth aware and watchful and cleaving to Christ Jesus. So he warns us of the danger that we could cleave to our safety. He warns us of our enemies that we can know our friend. He warns us of our judgment that we may know his salvation. You impact others. Whether you're a public person or whether few people know you, your life impacts others in the way and the things you speak of in the things that you do and don't do. Here's a question that each of us should wonder about and meditate on. What does my life, what does my speech, what does my doctrine tell others of Christ? Does it set forth Christ as He is? Does it set forth the way of salvation by grace? Does it set forth a joyous self-denying and obedience? Thus, we take up Christ confessing our sins, but also asking Him, keep us from ensnaring others, keep others from ensnaring us, and more than this, bless that we would be those not through whom offenses come, but through whom help would come to others for your praise. Would you stand with me? for prayer.